This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley. Coming up on today's episode, it's 25 years since Labour won the 1997 election. It's actually on Sunday, May the 1st, is the anniversary. Regular, long-time listeners of the Red Box Podcast remember that five years ago we did a special series called Lessons in a Landslide. It was just as Theresa May called the uh, general election back in 2017. And I spoke to Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, Angie Hunter, uh, Margaret McDonough, and some of the Times journalists at the time about covering that campaign. So what we've done is we've pulled them all together, all the best bits, in a half-hour documentary. But if you want to go back and listen to the originals, uh, just search wherever you're listening to this podcast. Search Red Box Lessons in a Landslide and you'll find all of the episodes there so you can listen to them in full. But that's our big thing which is coming up. Special half-hour documentary. Before that though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and today it is... The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, they've got a jingle as well. Everyone's got a jingle. Uh, good morning to James for Scythe. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. And from the Times, Manny Reid. Morning, Manny. Morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you both uh, with us. I mean, we should talk about uh, what's going on in uh, in politics. Uh, well, not a lot at the moment because we've all packed up and uh, headed off for another 10 days away from Westminster. But, James, uh, your warning of not sort of imminent any, any big explosions, but just a sense of paralysis which is creeping into number 10. Yeah, I think that, you know, the local elections, when polling the polls close at 10pm uh, on Thursday, I think there'll be a moment of nervousness in Downing Street. Will any Tory MP take that that moment to go public saying that Boris Johnson should go? I don't think at the moment there is a plan for a concerted number of them to do that. But I think the bigger danger is, you know, when you look at this Queen's speech, there's going to be lots of legislation in it, but, but what's the theme? What's the purpose of this government? And, I, you know, the, the Tories in 2019 were about kind of getting Brexit done and stopping Jeremy Corbyn. Both of those things were achieved quite quickly. And then COVID came along and that kind of obscured the fact that it wasn't quite clear what the Tories wanted to do. And I think this is one of the big problems, which is what is the defining purpose of this government? Do you get a sense of what the purpose of the government is, Melanie? Uh, no, I don't. And I think it's it's very hard to have big ideas after you've been in power for 12 years. Uh, and, and I think I think they're a bit tired. I think the one that the one that really makes me cross. 
is that they're not dealing with with uh, our housing, uh, uh, the, the the housing crisis in this country because they're scared of the Liberal Democrats. That that's the one that you know of, of all the things that that they could, as, as James says, you have a centre right government with a with a significant majority, and if they if they wanted to solve the housing crisis, then surely they could, but but they won't because they're scared of losing seats in the in the south. It's a strange thing, isn't it, James? The the sort of almost the timidity of Boris Johnson, a man who actually likes big, grand gestures, you know, whether it's a garden bridge or, you know, Boris bikes, or whatever, you know, big eye-catching things. And actually, you know, it, the, 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 the purpose of Boris Johnson's government was to get Brexit done, uh, which he, you know, by his terms, we have left the EU in a way that Theresa May didn't manage. But now it's just not clear why he even wants to be Prime Minister. Yeah, and I think Melanie is right that that the planning reform was is the kind of big missed opportunity, and and she's right. The Tories took fright after they lost in the Cheshire and Amersham by election, but where the Lib Dems ran on a kind of "don't build anything in this constituency" platform in in their kind of typically effective way. And I think, but I think we've got to get kind of realistic here, which is you know the, the Tory party is the party of the property owning democracy, or it is nothing, and. If home ownership rates continue to fall among the under 40s, it's really hard to see where the Tory vote comes from in a generation's time. Mm, mm, precisely. Mm. And, that's, and, it was such a, but, and also, I suppose, and you can say that Brexit and the pandemic has had an impact on this. But we're now potentially 18 months from a general election. Uh, there's not a lot you can do on major planning reform. You're certainly not going to get loads of houses built, even if even if he did commit to major planning reform, because you know there was just that missed opportunity at the very beginning of his premiership. Yeah, and I mean the the, mis- the mistake was not to do it straight away, not to do it in January 29, um, 2020 before COVID had even hit, um, because he needed to do it when he had the maximum level of political capital. Because because taking on the, the fact that people are reluctant to see more homes built in their constituency, you, know, you needed a prime minister at, at, at the peak of his powers to do that, not one who is in a position where he's worrying about who might be writing to the chairman of the 1922 committee that evening kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, I remember uh, speaking to people in Number Ten in the beginning of 2020. I think I even wrote maybe it was when I was writing Red Box. I wrote a piece there, and they were concerned at that point. They thought that the because at the very beginning of the year, we thought we're not going to rush into anything. We're drawing up the plans. We're putting together this amazing program for government, it, despite having just put that together in a manifesto. And then, as the pandemic sort of going into February was started looming, I remember speaking to somebody who was worried the pandemic would last for three months. And by the summer of 2020, that moment would have passed. That moment of opportunity would have passed. Well, clearly, the pandemic went on for much longer. And that moment has definitely passed now, Melanie. Totally. And, and uh, so, so they haven't got time to do it. So we fall back. They are falling back on this, uh, uh, you know, the amorphous thing about levelling up, uh, which, which can mean anything you want it to mean. And and will become, I think, one of you know, it, it'll become a bit like back to basics. It'll become become a, something to put on their tombstone. <laughs> it's got a lot to go on there, I think. Um, one thing before we um, just sort of slightly sticking with politics. One thing I, I cause, cause we've had a few messages about this. Um, the front of the Daily Mail today: Labour's lockdown lies and hypocrisy. Uh, Angela Rayner was at Sir Keir's beer gate event, despite party denying it. Four MPs tell how she used to joke to them about, I mean, let's not, about using Sharon Stone ploy at PMQs. Starmer flouted lockdown guidance his own birthday bash with cake. Are, do, have we got double standards when it comes to this, James? Is, does Keir Starmer have questions to answer? Or is there a material difference, do you think, that, that Boris Johnson was the one who passed the rules 
uh, so, that now appear to have been broken. Well, the first thing I would say is all MPs voted, for, nearly all MPs voted for these rules. So I think the, the responsibility was on, on all of them to follow them. I think you see here why the police were so reluctant to in, investigate retrospectively. Because if you turn up to an event, it's, it's very easy to deal with it. You know, you either tell people to go home or if it's really egregious, you, you can actually kind of issue fines. Once you start investigating things in the past, and especially as the rules kept changing, everything becomes more complex. And I think one of the problems is because the first uh, fine, which Boris Johnson, the first event, the, the event which Boris Johnson and uh, Carrie Johnson, Rishi Sunak were fined for, seems at the very mild end of a spectrum, you know, you know, a, you know, a birthday cake during the working day. That, I think, has meant that everyone is now looking back at, you know, what other politicians did and how did police forces handle those at the time. And I think this is the real problem of kind of retrospective investigations. Um, Melanie, what do you make of this? Because clearly in Scotland there have been other issues. There was the mask at the, was it the, a funeral or a wake that, when Nicholas Sturgeon had a mask on, then more recently in a barber shop too? Yeah, and I mean, they, they it, it all seems very small beer up here, I have to say. Uh, you know, a, a sort of a twenty-four hour wonder on on I think it was the front page of the of the of the the, the Daily Mail in Scotland, uh, and 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 then it's gone. And people aren't stupid. I think they put it in perspective a bit. Um, I, really, I I'm I'm to be absolutely honest, speaking personally, I'm getting a bit weary of it all. And uh, I'll be glad when when Partygate is over. Um, but it will depend on, on, on the results on May the 5th, I suppose. Yeah, well, uh, we'll uh, I suspect uh, everyone sort of said, oh, we need to wait for Sue Gray, and we're still, still working for Sue. Well, we need to wait for the police, and that seems to be true. We need to wait for the local elections. I suspect the local yeah. elections won't be the, uh, the definitive, no, uh, I don't, the I definitive don't, one. Either. No. And on and on it goes. Um, I think we've got until October. <laughs> what, party conference? Well, no, because of the, this Privileges Committee investigation. I don't think anyone thinks that's going to be wrapped up before then. So, I mean, um, I, don't, I don't mean to, to, to put a dampener on Melanie's day, but I think we've got quite a few more months of this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, put that in your diaries, everyone. Uh, <laughs> it's worse than waiting for the end of the pandemic. Um, does it matter, Melanie, this story uh, that we've been talking about on the show this morning, about how since the beginning of the year, the government has only put up a female minister for the, for the all-round morning round eight times. Uh, compared to 85 men. Uh, Labour is almost 50-50 at 49-45. Does it matter if it's always a man who's out talking for the government? I think it does matter a bit, yes. Um, but I, I'm also afraid it's the case that weaker ministers need to be protected because the morning broadcast round, I mean, it, 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 I, I couldn't do it. I think there are there are so many women who uh, probably aren't that good at being handed that poison chalice to go out and tell, you know, porkies and, 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 and be totally thin-skinned and bounce back unanswerable questions. And, um, you know, you need someone who's, you need someone like Grant Shapps, who's, who's, who's absolutely, who's like a little sort of rubber ball, don't you? And I, I think weaker ministers, um, who, you know, some of whom may be women, uh, as we know, um, you know, it's they're not going to be very good at it, so they are protected. Um, I'm not trying to defend my sex here, but it's 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 a very tough ask. Um, plus, they may be maybe um, doing domestic things in the morning. <laughs> 
And that's the sort of thing. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get letters if you say things like that. Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry, but it's true. It's true. But J- James, is it, is it, are they, do you think it is that they are protecting female ministers who, who are either less capable, not because they're women, but they just happen to be the case? I mean, it does seem odd that actually, you know, Boris Johnson's cabinet is about one in five, I think, are, uh, are women, you know, the, the foreign secretary. Uh, the Home Secretary, two of the great officers of state are women. But we had a weird situation this week when Nadine Doris, the Culture Secretary, launches her brand new uh, plan for overhauling broadcasting in Britain. And on the morning round, the big media event of the day for the government, they put up Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. Well, the first thing I would say is I don't think um, Tory ministers have been kind of actively volunteering to do the morning media round in, in recent <laughs> months for various obvious reasons. When I saw the story in the paper this morning, I, I, thought, I thought it might suggest that people are quite good at dodging dodging bullets. Um, I, I think what I would say is what I think is unfair, which I think is 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 something that does happen in politics, is if a female minister goes out on the morning media round and has a bad day, people are far quicker to write them off mm. than if, than so if it, when it happens mm. to a man. Um, you know, and also I think that people have, people don't adjust for um, how difficult the situation they've been asked to deal with is. So for example, I think Helen Waitley, who is the, the care homes minister during the pandemic, she's now a treasury minister. You know, she got lots of criticism and people saying, oh, you know, she really messed that up. When actually just the fundamentals of the situation in care homes with COVID made it almost impossible for anyone. I mean, it's, it's like saying it, it, it was an almost impossible um, situation to deal with. And so I think that that is, I think that is probably where the unfairness comes in, which is, you know, if a male minister has a bad day, Westminster and is much more inclined to say, oh, you know, that was a really tough ride. If a female minister has a bad day, people are much more inclined to say, oh, we've got to keep them off, you know, we've got to protect them. Um, and, I, and I think that is the, that is the, the kind of sexism of, of, of the situation. So true. So true. To do, you, do you think many, perhaps far from uh, female ministers being uh, more um, sensitive to these things, that actually maybe they're just smarter. That the, the sort of uh, willy waving tendency of a certain type of government minister, male government minister, I'll go out and defend the indefensible and dead bat it and, and ride it all out. Um, maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. That when the call goes up, because you know that you know when everything is well in the government, uh, the you know you might see Rishi Sunak popping up, but if things are really bad, then you know it's going to be Brandon mm. Lewis. <laughs> uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, for no apparent reason, suddenly appears on all outlets trying to to argue uh, that, that black is white. Yeah, it's poison child. No, I think that's a great spin actually to put in it, but I'll go with that. Yeah, absolutely are. go with that. Yeah, we are. Women are women are much more sensible than trying to go yes. out and defend this sort of nonsense. Uh, finally, James, the most important story of the day: stop mowing your lawn. Have you have you have you stopped mowing your lawn? Well, I stopped mowing my lawn because my my lawn has stopped growing. Sadly, it's a kind of <laughs> kind of mud patch. Um, no, but but I think people love these stories. People love it when laziness becomes a virtue. You know, don't 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 mow your lawn because it's better for the environment, better for the planet, better for the wildlife. I mean, I think, I think it's always fantastic when you're told that something that you weren't particularly keen to do anyway um, is actually a good thing that you're not doing. It. <laughs> and this is yes, yeah, it's helping the bees apparently. Stop mowing the lawn to give bees a chance. Or, or, as, or as they're now called pollinators, which is a wonderful one. Was <laughs> that, is can, that a, can, another PC gone mad thing? Can I can I give a quick mention here? Two two years ago, I, inter- I I reviewed a book for the Times called The Garden Jungle by a guy called Dave Goulson, who is a bee expert. 
The Garden Jungle, brilliant book, and everyone should read it. I go around giving it to people, and it's all about basically how we can save, we can do so much if we stop being, you know, chronically obsessive about having having little um, flat, perfect bowling greens in our back garden, and, uh, and I. I it's just mow paths instead and let the dandelions and the daisies grow. Um, I'm all in for it. I'm all in favour of that. Yeah. And join the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. I did after I read the book because I was so inspired by the book. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth then you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we turn the clock back to 1997. 25 years ago this week, Britain went to the polls. Tony Blair was riding high. New Labour seems set to sweep aside John Major's Conservatives after 18 long years in power. Yet behind the scenes, Blair's team was involved in a battle against complacency, gripped by the fear of a repeat of 1992, when Neil Kinnock famously declared... And they weren't. And they were not just fighting the Tories. As we'll discover during this inside account, they all too often were also fighting amongst themselves. I I never thought I would be Prime Minister. Gordon had just resolutely refused to sign off any of the campaign plans. I wouldn't say prima donnas so much. These were guys with massive egos. I've never seen Peter Madison so angry. He was screaming and shouting at the entire pack. Would it be more effective or less effective if I'd have been a bit cuddlier? I think it would have been less effective. We had candidates on the end of the phone saying, I didn't expect to get elected. How am I going to tell my wife? Over the years, I've interviewed many of the key players in New Labour's 1997 campaign, which eventually delivered the biggest majority since the Second World War, way beyond even their wildest expectations. To mark the anniversary, we'll hear from some of the key players in that record-breaking campaign, including Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, Angie Hunter and Alistair Campbell. 
about how to keep the show on the road when everyone is taking victory for granted. The new Labour grandees lift the lid on the long days on the road, the explosive behind-the-scenes rows and the fear that struck them as the scale of their win became clear. There it is, 10 o'clock, and we say Tony Blair is to be Prime Minister and a landslide is likely. As the results rolled in late on May the 1st, 1997, one man, perhaps the only person in Britain, was willing the Tories to do better. Standing in his Sedgefield front room watching the TV, Tony Blair panicked. I mean, it was a very odd feeling that night, because first of all, as the results came in, I actually at one point got worried. that I was literally looking at the screen and thinking... I think it's time the Tories won a few more seats because otherwise this is going to get this is going to be so big it's going to be an embarrassment and then people are going to think I've done something terrible to the constitution of the country because I think there was there was a moment early in the campaign maybe just because of the way the seats came in that that you know the Tories just had a handful and we were sort of mounting towards a hundred and I was thinking oh my god this is too much and the other thing was I mean I think I was the well one of the very few sober people around that night and I was was very sober and very, very conscious of the responsibility. Were you frightened? Yeah, I, I, I was... I mean, frightened is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. By the end of the night, with all the votes counted, Tony Blair had secured a staggering 179-seat overall majority. And yet, for Tony Blair himself, becoming PM had not been part of the plan. I, I never thought I would be Prime Minister. Actually, for a large part of my youth, I never had any interest in politics at all. I mean, if you told me when I was aged 18 or 19 that I was going to go into politics, never mind be Prime Minister, I would have not just dismissed the idea, but treated it with horror. In truth, by May 1997, he knew it was coming. After years of the Tories being mired in sleaze and rows over Europe, New Labour had established huge leads in opinion polls. On the eve of the election, Philip Webster, then political editor of The Times, was writing up the paper's final Mori poll when Alistair Campbell phoned. Without giving him the figures, I just said, look, you know as well as I do, you're heading for a landslide. And uh, I heard some sort of grumpy noise from beside him. And, and Alistair said to me, can you talk to him? And he puts Blair on. Tony Blair comes on the phone to me and says, um, Phil, what's all this about you writing we're going to get a landslide? I said, well, you know you're going to get a landslide. Uh, our poll suggests you're going to get a landslide, and I bet every other poll in the land is suggesting that. But if you if you put if you put that in the paper tomorrow, nobody's going to come and vote, are they? Uh, this was Blair on the night before. That was that was that showed the nerves. Alistair Campbell himself does not remember that moment of victory with any great fondness. I I, I, I still feel slightly um, let down that I didn't enjoy it. Um, no, I don't know why I didn't enjoy it. I think it was a mixture of things. I was probably exhausted, and. The worst thing for me, and I think Tony felt this a bit as well, is that most of the people who were there just as part of the crowd, they were, they were, that was it. They'd done what they were doing, whether they were party workers or whatever. But, you know, we had, we were actually, <laughs> we just, there was no stopping. The result marked the end of a roller coaster three years. In 1994, Tony Blair became leader following the death of John Smith and set about transforming the party. So who were the people behind this victory? Let's introduce you to the team. Alongside Alistair Campbell, a former Daily Mirror journalist, was Chief of Staff Jonathan Powell, the brother of Thatcher's advisor Charles, and a former diplomat himself who'd watched Bill Clinton's election-winning campaign up close. The real thing that matters is not our yesterdays, 
but our tomorrows. Philip Gould was the pollster who used focus groups to test every policy and personality that the party had. And Angie Hunter, Blair's old school friend, was his gatekeeper who kept the show on the road. And all too often she had to bang heads together when the politicians, Shadow Chancellor Gordon Brown, Deputy Leader John Prescott and MP and Campaign Director Peter Mandelson regularly clashed. I wouldn't say prima donnas so much. Just, these are, were guys with massive egos. That's what it, you know, pe- some people do have massive egos. Funnily enough, Tony doesn't. Politics is the art of, of managing yeah, yeah. massive egos. Nothing, it seems, was straightforward. There were rows about adding the word new to Labour, even rows about having a capital N. Peter Mandelson. As is often the case... Uh, I, I was the person who was most instrumental in making sure a decision was taken as to whether it was used. By this time, Mandelson was a veteran of sneaking big changes past the membership without them noticing, as Neil Kinnock's spin doctor had changed the logo from the red flag to the red rose. The new in New Labour was perhaps not so small. Blair says that without it, there would have been no landslide in 1997, nor the subsequent wins in 2001 and 2005. The new was vital. Because, you know, people, the, the times had moved on and people wanted a party that was committed to, to the traditional values of social justice but accepted that, you know, you needed a thriving enterprise sector, you know, that we weren't going to turn the clock back on the Thatcher reforms that basically people more or less accepted. Unlike previous elections, it was felt that the party now had the policies as well as the presentation to sell to the public. Margaret McDonough was the campaign coordinator and had carried around a Bill Clinton pledge card from California for four years before she suggested New Labour copy it. MPs were told it was for party members to use on the doorstep, but in truth, it was to keep them on message. Politicians get a bit bored, so they start talking about all sorts of things. (laughs) And so over about a year, we just want them to say the same stuff. So we did this pledge card and we said to the politicians, this is for the party. It'd be great if you could help the party if you used it as well. But, of course, it was never really about the party. It was always to keep the politicians on message. Behind the scenes, the power struggles that have become a hallmark of new Labour in government were already well underway. Blair insists this is just what happens when smart people, big personalities and strong opinions mix. It's in the nature of really smart, capable people, especially people able to withstand pressure, that they're people of strong opinions and views. So, you know, managing that did take some effort, although... In that first campaign, to be fair, the, the, the joint venture of success was so compelling that mostly people checked their egos out at the door. Mostly, not always. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, the, the, there's, there's, sometimes there was strong disagreement. With your relationship with Gordon, looking back now, do you wish you'd try to sort out that relationship before you went into government? Because actually those problems then continued... Afterwards, I don't think it was sortable in the end, because it was it was born of a. I mean, you know, of of what was a very difficult passage when John Smith died and then I became leader. But certainly at that stage, whatever difficulties there were were more than compensated by the enormous contribution that Gordon made, and you know the fact that he was there as a huge figure and carrier of a message and. With, with the capability also of impressing people completely independently of my position. You know, that was enormously important. But I think the, the essence of the problem was never 
never really changed. The relationship with Gordon Brown never really recovered from the decision in 1994 following the death of John Smith, which saw Blair stand for the leadership and Brown stepped aside. Peter Mandelson, though, is less forgiving about Gordon Brown's behaviour. When John Major uh, fired the starting pistol uh, for the campaign, Gordon had just resolutely refused to sign off any of the campaign plans, the grid, uh, the election broadcasts or anything because for whatever reason uh, he thought it was you know, being done by Tony's people um, notably me um, and uh, it, it, there was a sort of continue, he was in a sort of continuous state of protest um, <laughs> and wouldn't talk to us about it wouldn't talk to Alistair and wouldn't talk to others Alistair I remember was absolutely desperate for an economic plan, a plan to present our economic policies. There wasn't just the rivalry between Brown and Blair, there was John Prescott, Labour's deputy leader, who would often complain he was being left out of key conversations and decisions. That was a constant refrain from John. Was he being left out or was that just his over-sensitive personality? I think we'll draw a veil. <laughs> Very good. But I was going to say, was that actually the part, maybe part of the, way, the way, reason the campaign came together? Can I, can was I just that... say about John... It's not as if he was being left out. Everyone had their skills. Everyone had their sort of unique selling point, something, some gap that they would fill in the contribution they made to the campaign, and John was one of them. You know, was John best suited and best qualified to be, you know, part of the sort of central strategic command? No. But did he do an enormous lot else? Uh, you know, to bring uh, ballast to the campaign, to bolster it, and to you know reach parts of the body that perhaps you know others didn't. Yeah. Yes, he did. Campaign coordinator Margaret McDonough remembers the tension. There was an awful lot of conflict and challenge. I think that you need that if you're going to get something that's brilliant. I don't think it always feels like it if you're in the middle of it. I had, for example, and I don't think he'd disagree um, with this, I had quite a difficult relationship with John Prescott uh, in the early years. You know, our politics is quite different. And um, I, I remember he was really hacked off with something that I hadn't told him about. I think actually, you know, it was probably Tony Blair's responsibility to tell him, but, you know, he's not going to kick uh, metaphorically Tony Blair. You know, it's kind of easier to have a, a, a go at me. All of this when they were supposed to be fighting the Tories and not each other. Despite big poll leads, constant efforts were made to reach potential voters who weren't usually engaged with politics through women's magazines, big billboards on Piccadilly Circus, celebrity supporters like Helen Mirren and Richard Branson, and memorably an appearance on Des O'Connor's chat show Sofa. Once a lead singer in a pop group, but these days he's the leader of a much bigger band, the Labour Party. Please welcome the leader of the opposition, the Right Honourable Tony Blair. <laughs> Sitting on that couch last week were the Spice Girls. <laughs> They've done an article in The Spectator having a go at um, John, and John Major and having a go at your good self. I mean, they also said that Mrs. Thatcher, they thought, was the first Spice Girl. No, well, I, I've actually, I've, I did meet the Spice Girls. They have sort of bare midriffs, uh, short skirts, mm -hmm. um, sort of earrings, and uh, sort of through various pins parts of yeah, pins and things and tattoos. I, I don't, I can't really see Margaret Thatcher like that. <laughs> so I asked Tony Blair, which was worse, David Dimbleby or Des O'Connor? 
Desert Connor for sure is much more difficult. <laughs> any, any interview when a politician is taken out of their natural habitat, which is answering questions about policy or political issues of the day, and they're, they're translated into a, con- a context of, of, you know, what are you like as a human being? You know, you're always conscious that either, either you may come across as, you know, just someone people don't like or, you know, it's you're just out of your routine and you're out of where, where you're comfortable. So, no, no, the Desert Connor interview is far more troubling than the sort of David Dimbleby type thing. This is the inside story of the new Labour victory 25 years ago this week. Still to come, the election stunts that backfired from a gay lion to the offensive undercarriage of Peter Mandelson's bulldog. This is Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Visa, connecting you to the businesses you love. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Visa, supporting small businesses on their digital journey. Matt Jolly on Times Radio, revisiting conversations I've had over the years with new Labour grandees about how they won the 1997 election. From sit-down interviews with the likes of Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson to reuniting the Times political team who covered the campaign, these are the people who had a front-row seat on history. The stakes might be high, but life on the road can be pretty grim. Tony Blair remembers that he used to enjoy interacting with the public, but being a party leader during an election campaign is a dangerous place to be. You know, I used to enjoy campaigning a lot because I enjoy interacting with people. But when you're the leader and you're, you're, you're in that type of extraordinarily hyper atmosphere, then you're aware that you're on, on the at-risk register all the time. <laughs> you know, it only requires one stray remark or, you know, someone does something, uh, you know, and you're plunged into panic and chaos. So, no, I would say, you know, when you're, you're leading your party in a campaign... I mean, some people just love even that part of it. I was always very conscious of the responsibility of it. Peter Mandelson explains how Blair insulated himself from thoughts of victory. Tony couldn't, didn't dare think we might win, certainly not with that sort of majority, because uh, he thought that, sort of, as you say, complacency might creep in and we might have, shockingly yet again, uh, defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. It, what I, I was also like that. You, I mean, you were the I, same. Well, I'm a warrior. Yeah. I mean, I'm a warrior and a warrior. <laughs> um, and I worry all the time about things. It's a nervous habit I have. But only through worrying do you get results or do you get anything approaching uh, perfection. As an example, Jonathan Powell, the leader's chief of staff, held talks with the civil service and trained front benches in being a minister in preparation for government. But Blair insisted on being kept in the dark about all of that. Every day was planned meticulously on the famous grid. Each visit, press release and speech coordinated from the open plan office at the campaign headquarters in Millbank Tower. There was a whole team which for two years just worked on the final five days of the campaign. It included changing the entire colour scheme from red to purple. Cynics call all this spin, accusing Labour of manipulating the media by putting their own interpretation on events. Alistair Campbell defends his work. I don't think I was ever over-controlling. I think that it was over-controlling <laughs> some people. But no, I think... I think, And even, even you know, I didn't care about what the media said about the campaign. I mean, all I cared about was whether the campaign was effective or not. 
You see, I can only operate that way. I can't, I can't <laughs> operate without being full on. Would it have been more effective? So the question, I, that's the question I asked, would it be more effective or less effective if, if I'd have been a bit cuddlier? I think it would have been less effective. Critics say New Labour's use of spin ultimately damaged trust in politics, but Blair rejects that. I mean, obviously, I don't think it's fair because I think that in today's world, frankly, I don't know what government that came after us that didn't have a sophisticated communications machine. And nowadays, by the way, it's got to be more sophisticated because of social media. Unlike today's campaigning, which all takes place online, Facebook ads and Twitter rows, this was an era of political stunts designed to attract media attention and generate good pictures of the papers and news bulletins. James Landale, now BBC diplomatic correspondent, was a junior political reporter for The Times in 1997. Um, one of the big slogans the Labour Party had was 22 Tory tax rises that they said had taken place under the previous regime. And th- I remember going to uh, Millbank Tower, the Labour Party headquarters, where they, uh, they had a stunt of the day arranged by Peter Mandelson. And um, the stunt was they'd got a test your strength machine... Right, one of those things with a hammer that you hit, and then the thing goes up to test your strength. And of course, the the, the measure were the twenty two Tory tax rises, and the sort of the, the gimmick was they'd got Britain's tallest man, some complete giant, to come <laughs> yes. on and do it. And, and so we watched solemnly as this man, and he was so big, he was very ungainly and could hardly hit anything, um, as he did all this for the cameras. Um, and this was the era when. The big gaffe was for a political party to use an actor or a a civilian uh, for part of their promotion, but then we discovered they voted for the other side. So, of course, um, inevitably, we wanted to ask this poor giant, um, uh, you know, how did did he vote? Um, The Labour Party had cottoned on to this. Uh, and so they, t- so we all immediately went up and said, "Look, how do you vote like that?" But they tried to whisk him away. The trouble is getting rid of a bloke who's kind of <laughs> sort of eight foot plus. And so he, he whisked off. We all charged after him. There's a bit of a scrum. Um, and then after, I've never seen Peter Mandelson so angry. He was screaming and shouting at the entire pack. Um, he accused me of being um, a member of the Conserv- Federation of Conservative Students as a result of me. Um, and he then put in a formal complaint to the Times. Fully remember this. I do. Um, that I have to say, the people who actually put in the, the complaint were, were slightly um, embarrassed. Philip Webster, the Times' political editor, calls another stunt. The Tory party at the time was in total disarray. And they got this lion... Uh, that they, they they campaigned with a lion. Uh, they used it as a symbol, the symbol of the lion. And the, the pit, they, they used this picture of a lion in all kinds of um, broadcasts and things. And uh, one of our colleagues discovered that the lion was gay. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> the other animal was um, uh, the Labour Party got a, a bulldog. Oh, called, course, called yeah. Buster, uh, who was there, to, which they used for some of their promotional material, which was designed to sort of show how patriotic they were. So Peter Manson arranged for this this dog uh, to be photographed, but it subsequently turned out that the um, the nether regions of this dog had been airbrushed out <laughs> for fear of offending the voters, yeah. yes. um, which caused a bit of fun. Even when voting had ended at 10 p.m. on May the first, Blair refused to listen to reports about that exit poll. After attending his own count in Sedgefield, he boarded a private jet to take him to London. Angie Hunter, one of his closest aides and friends, was on the plane. I so remember leaving Sedgefield that night to go back down to London, shocked, actually, by the scale of the victory and the responsibility. And I can remember Tony and Cherie on the plane, sitting there. I remember her, her looking at him, and he was not frozen by it at all, in such deep thought about, my God, you know, the enormity of what had, you know, happened. And we were all overwhelmed 
by the enormity of what had happened. I mean, we picked ourselves up, obviously, the next day, and so you know, you know, skipped into Downing Street. But that night, the sh- it, we were in genuine shock. And I remember on the plane, Alistair got a text or something about Michael Portillo. Portillo, Michael Denzel, Xavier. Thank you, members. Conservative Party, 19,137. Twig, Stephen, Labour Party, 20,000. That was a real big shock, seismic shock. Next stop for Blair was the victory rally at Royal Festival Hall, where he famously declared, A new dawn has broken, has it not? I was being invited by the Queen to form the first Labour government for 18 years. Blair arrived in Downing Street to an unprecedented scene of flag-waving new Labour supporters. The scale of the 1997 new Labour landslide and Blair's personal levels of popularity perhaps meant that it was inevitable that he would then face a fall from hero to zero in the eyes of many. I think it's definitely true that the expectations were colossally out of line with anything that any government could possibly do. And actually, one of the really interesting things when you go back in time is you look at the what we promised was extraordinarily modest. I mean, if you take that pledge card, the famous pledge card with the five pledges on it, we, we did them all. All that was still to come. The morning after, the election night before, there was a lot of work to do. Margaret McDonough says the scale of the victory meant that there were dozens of people who suddenly found they'd been elected as MPs who never dreamed they would be propelled to Westminster. We started to field calls and we had candidates on the end of the phone saying, I didn't expect to get elected (laughs) or how am I going to tell my wife? It changed, absolutely changed people's lives. After an election campaign soundtracked by Things Can Only Get Better, perhaps it was inevitable that behind the scenes things could only get increasingly bitter. But how does Tony Blair feel now when he hears that song? Of course, it is a great ring of nostalgia to it. You know, I'm by nature um, forward-looking, not backward-looking, and it reminds me of, of, of what was a great, a great time. And, you know, we did change the sort of tenor and tone of of what went on in the country. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.